Aren't you glad he's all we need? And may our prayer be he's all we want. Do you remember the last time you experienced awe and wonder? The last time you were just amazed? Remember that time? I have a little video of a little girl who experienced something to what I'm talking about. Remember as a kid at Christmas time when you got something and it just took your breath away and you're just like I didn't I didn't anticipate didn't expect this. So if you guys will kind of lean into God's word today, uh, we're going to talk about one treasure, one key that will unlock God's smile in your life. How many of you would like to not just know that God's smiling but experience God's smile? I don't know about you, but I would like that. We're going to talk about several things with the story in Luke's gospel. We're going to be in chapter 7. But we find Jesus and a centurion, and we find a guy that's really sick. And this guy, the centurion, does something um, that really gets Jesus' attention. And it causes Jesus to marvel. So today's message is called, When, when Jesus Marveled. If you will look in chapter 7, verse 1, we're going to ask the big question today, what would make Jesus marvel in your life? What would make Jesus marvel in your life? Let's start in verse 1. Now when he had concluded all the sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And a certain centurion servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. Before we go into verse 3, I want you guys to enter emotionally into the text. You ever been sitting at someone's bedside that was dying? Maybe it could be a spouse. Maybe it could be a family member. And you did everything possible to keep them from dying. They saw the best doctors. Um, you, you prayed prayers. You fasted. You did everything possible. Well, this is where the centurion's at. He's very wealthy, but he has a servant that's very dear, and he's about to die. So let's see what happens next. So when he heard about Jesus... He sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving. For he loves their nation, and he has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them. And when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself. For I am not worthy or I'm not deserving that you should come under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. 
but say the word and my servant will be healed. For I'm also a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent returned to the house, found the servant well who had been made sick, who had been sick. Let us pray. Father, we want to see what kind of what kind of attribute or what was in this centurion that made Jesus marvel. That caused him to take a double take and like, wow. So Lord, help us to see that. We want to experience your smile. We want you to have your attention on us. So Lord, help us to understand what your word has to say. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I'm just going to take you guys through this text. And there's a few elements that you may think this was the thing that called Jesus to marvel. But there's only one thing that calls Jesus to marvel, and I want you guys to kind of take, take an exploration with me. First of all, we see the caring compassion of the centurion, the caring compassion. Verse 2 says, a certain centurion who was dear to him, had a servant who's dear to him, was sick and ready to die. So we have a centurion. How many soldiers uh, did a centurion oversee? Does anybody know? A hundred, right? So he was over a hundred centurion, a hundred soldiers. He was kind of be like a captain in the army, as we'd say. And guys, this was a man's man. I mean, he was the leader of leaders. He he oversaw over a hundred men. And we understand that the Roman army um, occupied this area. We were finding ourselves in Capernaum, but you have Israel and the surrounding area where Romans overtook it, and they the Israelites, the Jews, were servant to the Romans. So do you think that as a whole, um, the invading army was considered favorable by the Jews or unfavorable? Probably didn't like him very well, would you? Just like if another country, God forbid, overtook America and they sent their troops in here, we probably wouldn't want to see them coming around with, with guns or weapons. But we have this centurion and we see that he has compassion. On his servant. And this is very unusual for this culture because that day and time, unfortunately, it wasn't God's plan, but people had slaves and servants and they were considered property. But for some reason, this centurion saw his servant as a person and he wanted to do whatever it took to help this guy get better. Now, in the New Testament, we have four centurions. And as a whole, the Bible always looks at centurions in the New Testament favorably. We have the centurion here. Does anybody remember the centurion at the crucifixion? And I can imagine him dropping his hammer and saying, surely this was the Son of God, which you know, that was a great statement. Then we have Acts chapter 10. Does anybody remember who that was? The first Gentile to get saved. Cornelius, right? We have the Gentile getting saved and all of them in Acts chapter 10. And he was a God-fearer. And then fast forward to the book of Acts where Paul is getting ready to be shipwrecked. And as the ship is getting ready to, to be a grounded and wreck, um, one of the soldiers wanted to kill all the prisoners. But there was a centurion that said, let's not because of Paul's sake. 
So we have four centurions, and they all look very favorably in the Bible. So I love seeing this guy, the centurion. He has so much power. He's a guy of, of wealth, but yet he cares about this one guy. And I feel like we should model that. Like we should care for the broken. We should care for the hurting. We should care for the downcast. But that's not the thing that calls Jesus to marvel. The second thing we see is the severe sickness of the centurion servant. Look at verse 2. This Dr. Luke would like to tell you that this servant was about to die. And I want you guys not just to read the text and just say, okay, this guy was about to die. I want you to see this guy as someone's family member. This could have been a father. This could have been a husband. Imagine this is your father, your husband, your brother, your friend, and he's about to die. Would you do whatever it took to get this person better? I know I would. And I, as I was looking at this text, uh, Capernaum around this time, the best estimate I could find, it was around 1,000 to 1,500 people in Capernaum in the life of Jesus. So I want you to think about it. In a town of about 1,500, do you think the centurion... He at least heard about Jesus. We know that. But do you think he heard Jesus preach? We don't know. Uh, Wearsby said there's no evidence of this, but I, I would like to imagine the guy at least knew that Jesus was the miracle worker. He at least knew Jesus was doing amazing things. Because we're going to find out in a little bit he built a synagogue in Capernaum. And if you build a synagogue with your own money, don't you think you'd occasionally go there? And didn't Jesus preach in the synagogue? So you put everything together, there's a highly likelihood the guy at the very least heard about Jesus, if perhaps he had not heard a message or something from Jesus, we don't know. So the interesting thing about the servant that really struck with me is if you're in a dire circumstance, if you're in a bad spot in life or someone in your family is, then you're a good candidate for a miracle. You ever thought about that? A miracle is only necessary when you're in a bad situation. So if you know someone in your family your work that's in a bad situation, remember that if Jesus is involved, then you become a good candidate for a miracle. And I still believe, even as a Baptist pastor, I still believe God does miracles. The Bible says he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I believe the reason why we don't see miracles as much today is because of our lack of faith. We fill our lives with other stuff. We don't have this reckless abandonment to, I believe God no matter what. So we see that this guy was in a miserable situation. So that kind of sets up the scene. Next, we see the hopeful healer of the helpless. The hopeful healer of the helpless. Verse 3 says that, So when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him. Notice it says he heard about Jesus. Your greatest problem and my greatest problem is not what you think it is. It's not your circumstance. It's not your situation. It's not the terror facing you. It's not what happened in the past, and it's not what could happen in the future. Your greatest problem is a hearing problem. Did you know that God always has a word for your situation? He does. And the Bible is our guide, and the Holy Spirit is our helper. And he takes the Bible and he makes it alive. He alivens it because the Bible is full of God's breath and his word. It's living, it's active. So I love the fact that he heard about Jesus. Folks, we live in a culture that they don't hear about the Jesus we know. They have a perception of Jesus, but they don't really know Jesus like we know them. And a lot of people in culture say, I'm a Christian, 
But what they mean by that is, well, I don't have any other religion, so that's what my family was, so I'm a Christian. And we need to get the word out. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by what? The word of God. So how can they hear unless we tell them? How can we hear it? So the word of God is too important just to stay in here. The word of God needs to live through our lives. It needs to be in the marketplace. It needs to be when you're at your job. It needs to be around the family table. It needs to be in the conversations around the television. The word of God is so living, we need to let it out, to let it shine. There's a new principle I heard recently that really stuck with me. How many hours are in a week? Does anybody know? 168. In so much in American culture, we ask people to come that one hour on Sunday. It may be more if you go to Sunday school. But on average, the person comes to worship one hour. But what about the 167 hours outside of church? Isn't it kind of crazy? We want people to go to one hour. And we pray to God that it changes their life. And we hope they do. But what about the 167? What about... Where you, where you live, work, and play, where you're retired, where, where you spend your time. There's two types of churches. There's the come and see church, and then there's the go and tell church. The come and see church is, man, we got a great 11 o'clock service. You won't believe the choir. And, you know, the pastor, he's a, he doesn't put me to sleep. I mean, I, I, maybe we could have better preaching, but the music, I mean, you need to come and check it out. And it's like, okay, so come and see. There's nothing wrong with that. But it should never end there. We should turn the come and see, and we should be the go and tell church. And you see even in this passage that Jesus went with the people. And the Great Commission, he tells us to, to stay, right? Stay and make disciples. <laughs> no, he tells us to go. And so many times we get in the church culture, we, if you build the building, they will come. So we, we, we mold into the, the come and see church. But Jesus said to go and tell. Tell the good news. Yes, we need people to come and see, but we need everyone that come and sees to go and tell. Amen. So we see that the centurion heard about Jesus. And we need the world. We need every man, woman, and child to have an opportunity to hear. You're like, well, how is that possible? I'm not asking you to preach to the whole world. I'm asking you to preach to your world. You can't change everybody, but you can impact the people in your circles. And I'm not asking you to be the televangelist that stands up on a chair, or the street preacher. I'm asking you to take the presence of Christ with you wherever you go and win the right to be heard. And as opportunities arise, you're ready to share a little bit of what God's doing in you. I was at a coffee shop yesterday studying, and there was this guy, probably was in his 70s, and he noticed this lady had this military hat on, and he knew the branch, the division, all the military talk. Military guys know what I'm talking about. And then her husband comes out, and he uses the military as a bridge to say, you know, I served, but you know, the greatest thing in my life is Jesus Christ. And he used that as a bridge and come to find out they were Christians and they were just having revival right there in the coffee shop. And I'm like, that's, that's what it's about, building the bridge to share Christ. So Jesus is the hopeful healer and he can bring hope. So this guy heard about Jesus. He is the hope for your hopeless situation. He is the answer to every question you may have. Your greatest problem is a hearing problem. Next, we see the leveraged leadership of the centurion. The leveraged leadership of the centurion. Look at verse 3. He sent elders of who? The Jews. Okay, now think with me. Why would a Roman centurion, who basically is overseeing all the Jewish people, he's like the military police in a way, why would he send a Jewish person to Jesus? 
Anybody think about that? Well, there is a cultural thing. In that day and time, if you, were a, if you weren't a God-fear, if you were just a, a Gentile and you went into a Jewish home, you would be considered, the, the Jewish would be considered ceremonial defiled. So part of it is there's this, you know, I don't want to defile, you know, I don't want to take a chance of a Jew being defiled by me coming. So that's for him coming to my house. That's part of it. But isn't there a leadership principle involved that this centurion is, is a leader of leaders and he's leveraging people to go do things? He sends the Jews to Jesus because he's like, you know, if anybody can connect with Jesus, everybody, but his mindset, the Jewish elders from the church, don't you think they would connect with Jesus? Well, sad to say, many of them didn't, right? The scribes and Pharisees. But he's like, I'm going to use the Jewish elders and I'm going to have them talk to Jesus. And you read later in the story, he sent his own friends. So he's sending out people to represent him. And you're like, well, what does that have to do with me? I'm not a centurion. I don't even view myself as a leader. But I would say leadership is influence. And if you are leveraging your influence for God, it's going to make an impact. And I hate to say this. This is an honest confession. But did you realize that Satan and the forces of darkness are more organized than most churches? Did you guys realize that? Satan is organized into principalities and powers and he's got a strategy and it's very well organized. But the average church, we're like, come on, y'all, we're going to come on Sunday. And it's like, that's wonderful. But what about the rest of the week? What about the people that are battling on Monday? What about the person that's having this marital problem on Tuesday? What are we going to do as a church? I'm glad you're asking those questions. At least I hope you are. Uh, John Maxwell, if you'll notice on your listening guide, he gives us some good leadership guide principles. So as you think about the leadership of the centurion and how great of a leader that he he was, we see in Scripture, um, Maxwell gives us some practicality. The first tip he gives us is walk slowly through the halls. Maxwell says one of the greatest mistakes leaders make is spending too much time in their offices and not enough time out among the people. Have you ever worked for a company where the owner, the CEO was kind of untouchable. You never saw him or her. And that was like, you're like, why am I, this guy seems like I can't connect. And then you have an employer that she or he is just very with the people. You know, they care for you. Which one do you want to work for? You want to work for the second person, right? That walks the hallways, connects with people. So Maxwell also says, see everybody as a zero, right? Is that what it said? A 10. In other words, I know you're not perfect, but listen, I, I don't see just your problems. I see your potential. I want to call out the, what God's doing inside of you, and I want to develop you. And as a result, if, if you call out people's best, they're going to rise up to your expectation. Maxwell goes on to say, develop each team member as a person. Getting the job done through others makes you a leader, he says. But developing the people while getting the job done makes you an exceptional leader. Oh, to God that the church should be full of leaders in the marketplace and in the ministry and everywhere else, that you're not just getting the job done, you're developing people. Maxwell goes on to say, place people in their strength zones. Have you ever tried to do something that you weren't really good at and you flopped? Anybody ever been there? I was talking to the 930 service about this. I, you don't want me up here singing because I'm not, I'm not a very good singer as much as I want to. I think part of my issue with singing is I did a nursing home ministry for a few years, and they thought I sounded great. But I didn't realize many of them couldn't hear. And they complimented, and I was like, man. So they built up my confidence. So there was one time, I was a church planner in Hendersonville, 
And for four years, everything, we got worship leaders. It was great. But one Sunday, the band couldn't play. We had musicians in the audience, and they didn't want to sing. So I was like, you know, we've got to have worship. So here I am, Timothy steps out, and I sing. And I kid you not, one, one of the interesting things, the audience sang louder than ever before that Sunday. You want to guess why? They didn't want to, me to embarrass myself. So literally, they were leading, they were leading worship from the, the seats. They were yell, you know, singing out, and I'm like, only they could sing this way every week. And I say that to say, I'm not a singer. And I, I can try, but that's not my strength zone. It's kind of like the movie, many of you have seen Rudy, the, the football player, how he, what is it, Notre Dame, he wants to play football, and he's smaller, and he's not strong enough, but he's so committed. So he dedicates his entire life. And what does he get to play, like 30 seconds his senior year? They put him in the game. And that's a great inspirational story. But what if Rudy would have dedicated that same passion and strength and ability to something he was actually good at? Wouldn't that be a much better outcome? So that's where Maxwell's going. Number five, Maxwell says, model the behavior you desire. Leaders need to be what they want to see. For those of you who are parents and grandparents, I'm preaching in the choir, but if you want your kids to practice self-control and have emotional fortitude and patience, if you fly off the handle all the time, what is that teach teaching them? <laughs> and all the parents and grandparents said, ouch, isn't it? Do as I do, not as I, do as I say, not as I do, right? So model the behavior. Maxwell says transfer the vision. So one of the biggest complaints I have as a pastor throughout my years in ministry is people say of the church, I don't know where the church is going. You ever said that? I don't know what their vision is. I don't know what their strategy is. I just, it's come on and see, y'all. Come on Sunday. That's it. And the next, and we'll see you next Sunday. And, the next, and, and it's like, I want clarity. And that's why, as Christians, we need to have a, a focused vision of where we're going. And our vision at Arden First is to lead ordinary people into what? Extraordinary life in Christ. We want every man, woman, and child to have an opportunity to respond to the gospel. That's our vision. And then he says, reward for results. Whatever actions leaders reward will get repeated. So I love this. A lot of times in business, in family, in life, in ministry, you want people to do something, but you don't thank them or reward them or notice it when they do it well. This is called positive affirmation. So what is the rule, Lori, for every negative? You have to give 10 positives to your kids. And that kind of works with adults, too. Have you ever noticed that? If someone's constantly criticizing you, you're like, man, they don't, and they may like you, but try to be affirming and try to, what you want to see them do, constantly say, good job, reward. So as Christians, we need to be edifying each other. That's building each other up. So those are some leadership principles from Maxwell. When I think of the centurion, him overseeing a hundred soldiers, and then as he's encountering Jesus, he sends out the Jewish elders and then he sends out his friends, and he's leveraging all these people. I think we need to learn how to be better leaders in the church. Amen. Next, we see the passionate plea of the Jewish elders. Notice verse 4. When they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying the one for whom he should do this was deserving. And they give two reasons. He loves our nation, and he has built us a synagogue. Now, on your listening guide, I put four things they did when they came to Jesus Three out of the four are noteworthy, and one of the four they didn't quite get right. Let's see if, see if you guys get which one they got wrong. The first one, when it comes to prayer, they came to Jesus. Is that good that they came to Jesus? 
That's good. I would put a check on there. They asked him with a passionate plea. Is it good to pray passionately? I would say amen to that. They were specific with the request. Come and heal this servant of the centurion. Is that good to be specific? Now, here's where it gets a little dicey. They said this guy is deserving because he did certain things. Now, this may come from the Old Testament and the New Testament law of the harvest where you reap what you sow. But that is as a believer, and it's not because you deserve it, it's because God's gracious. You guys get where I'm going. So one thing they got wrong was this guy is deserving. Is anybody really deserving of anything good? It's simply by God's grace. And I get what they're saying, and I put this on your notes. They're probably thinking, you know, Jesus, if anyone is a candidate for a miracle, this guy's got to be at the top of the list. At the same time, I would say to them, you know, that may be true from a human perspective, but from God's perspective, no one is deserving. And that's like, ouch. But that's where grace comes in. And you notice the centurion's response. We're going to see in a little bit. He saw himself as not deserving, not worthy. So one of the parallels with this, you'll find as you grow in your Christian walk, people will say, man, so-and-so is a great prayer warrior. They're amazing. They're godly. And that they lift you up. But your response has to be like the centurion. I, I'm not worthy. It's anything good. It's God's grace. Amen. Next, we see the generous, the gracious generosity of the centurion. Notice that the centurion, because he loved the Jewish people, he built them a synagogue. Now, I have a few pictures I'm going to show up here of the synagogue. This was built upon the ancient ruins of the centurion synagogue. Now, now let's go and flip to the next picture. You see how big this is. See people looking at it. All right, let's look at the last one. This is going to show um, the synagogue was destroyed. And then in the 3rd, 4th century, they built upon the foundation stones of the original building. So let's put this in context. This centurion was raised in a pagan, multi-pluralistic religious system. You think about the, the Roman gods. Uh, have anybody ever seen Marvel comics? It's all these superpowers. And, and that's kind of how like the, the Greco-Roman gods are. I mean, multiple gods, paganism. So it is interesting that this guy that is the occupying army in Capernaum built with his own money the synagogue. Now, I don't know about you, but marble, stone, um, all this stuff that was probably in it, that cost a lot of money. That'd be like the equivalent of someone coming to Arden first and saying, you know, I, I've not really been around the whole Christian thing, and I don't even know if I'm a believer yet, but um, there's something about your God that really strikes me. And I want to build you guys a brand new sanctuary. I want to build you, you know, the state-of-the-art building. And, here, and they write that you guys don't have to raise any money. I'm going to pay for it myself. Now, here's a here's question I've got to ask is how did the guy that's in the Army, many of you remember Army pensions, how did he have the money to pay, the, pay for this, right, on a military salary? Well, in history, a lot of times the wealthy people, they would send their son to be centurions in the Roman army. So their, their family was very wealthy, but being a centurion, and for those of you who have served in armed forces, it teaches you leadership, it teaches you discipline, it teaches you structure. And um, so most likely this guy wasn't wealthy just because of his army pension, but it was his family was very wealthy. So he built this, so he's very generous. And here, here's, here's a little thought to the church. This year, the church turned 60 years old. I don't know if you guys knew that or not, but 60 years old. And we stand on the shoulders of many people like the centurion that built this church. 
I've heard so many stories about, and I'm not going to give any names, it's all to God, but people that cashed in their, their children's college fund to build the fellowship hall. People that, you know, mortgage and stocks and bond, they did whatever they felt led to do. And we're here today because of the generosity of the people that have gone before. If only these walls could speak, they would speak of sacrifice and generosity. So the pew you're sitting on, you may not realize it, but someone sacrificed for that many years ago. And we stand on the shoulders of those who have gone on before. So what we have to do is realize generosity is great, and we applaud those who have done it. But did you know it wasn't the centurion's generosity that got Jesus' attention? What was it? Well, let's continue on. We see the honest humility. Verse 6, then Jesus went with them. So all of a sudden, Jesus is coming with them, and the centurion sends out another delegation. First, he sent the Jewish, what? Jewish elders. Then he sends his personal friends. And they, they repeat the centurion's word, Jesus, I'm not worthy or deserving that you should come under my house. I'm not worthy. He says it twice. I'm not worthy, which also can be translated, I'm not deserving. Notice the Jewish elders said, this guy's deserving. And the centurion says, I'm not deserving. So we see this powerful man that humbles himself. Because think about it. If you're a centurion from a political standpoint, not from eternity in the biblical standpoint but from political you're technically over all the jews which would include jesus right i mean you're you're the invading army but he humbles himself under jesus and he says i'm not worthy so church can we talk a little bit about a humility i think this is the greatest thing we misunderstand in church and um, i got this chart from a, a teacher his name's don i believe his last name is pronounced swanger He really did a great job of breaking down false humility, true humility, and pride. So I'm not going to read the whole chart to you, but this is for you to go and examine. And as I read through this, I had to check mark, God, forgive me, God, forgive me. All right, let's look at false humility for a second. It's self-defeating mindset, poor self-image, evaluating oneself too negatively, like I'm a failure, I'm worthless, I can't do anything right, no one likes me. On the flip side, pride is the opposite. It's self-centered thinking too highly of yourself, an exaggerated opinion of yourself or a view of oneself. Now look in the middle, the white, true humility. It's self-forgetfulness. It's selflessness, not self-centered, not fearful what others think of you, not preoccupied with self-concerns. So I love what Rick Warren says. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And I think that's, that's where, where it's coming at. Okay, let's look at the next one. False humility, tendency to be self-despising or belittle oneself, to be self-deprecating around others, excessively modest due to feeling inferior, useless, or unworthy. So here's the idea. You ladies cook a great meal and you have company. Oh, that meal was so wonderful. Oh, it was nothing. Oh, I'm just unworthy. You know? <laughs> or like, um, you know, the choir does a great job. Choir, that was amazing. Oh, we're nothing. We're unworthy servants. I get, I get what you're trying to do, but that's kind of false humility. It's better to say thank you and glory to God versus, oh, because here's the thing. If, if I try to compliment you ladies on your meal and you self-deprecate yourself, it doesn't make me want to compliment you anymore. Because I'm like, well, I'm not going to say thank you again because you see where I'm going with that. Now, let's look at the flip side of pride, vanity and vainglory, excessive display boasting in one's appearance, qualities, abilities, and achievements. So pride is kind of like a two-sided coin. On one side you have vanity, the other side you have false humility. So vanity is thinking more of yourself, 
False humility is trying to put yourself down because you feel insecure. And you guys want to tell, tell you what's the root of all pride? It's kind of two, two roots. The first one is insecurity, and the second one is selfishness. So here's the thing. If I'm insecure, I'm going to try to cover up for it by making myself look better or less than I should because I'm trying to cover up because I feel insecure. And if I'm selfish, the attention is going to be all about me. You ever, and don't answer this out loud, you ever walk into a room that people you don't know and you wonder what they think about you? I know that's really bad when you're in high school and college, but as adults we still do that. I wonder what people are thinking. Here's the thing, most people are thinking about themselves, so they're not thinking about you. A little secret. So here's the thing, if we can go back to the root of it, if where I'm insecure, if I can ask God to help me find my security and my identity in Christ, what Steve Harris talked about a few weeks ago, and instead of focusing on self, I focus on others, that will help you minimize pride and false humility. Because one of the things, if you look at the left column of false humility, the church struggles with the left side more than anything. Preoccupied, anxious concern with oneself, can't focus on others. People pleaser. Don't raise your hand. How many of us struggle with worrying what people think about too much? That's a symptom you may struggle with false humility. Because then again, it's all about yourself. So I love the centurion. He has so much power. He's wealthy. But listen, guys, he doesn't take the power. He doesn't take a power trip. He doesn't act snooty because he has a lot of money. He says, listen, I'm undeserving. And I think that's the most beautiful thing if God has blessed you in different areas. Some of you are highly intelligent. Some of you have great gifts and abilities. Some of you have great means. Some of you, let's go on. But listen, if anything good comes to you, who's it from? God. So I'm not going to I'm not going to get prideful, nor am I going to say, well, I'm just unworthy and undeserving. And you you self-deprecate yourself to the point where people think, man, what's going on with that person? And sometimes false humility comes across so bad because, again, the tension is on you and not on Jesus. And everyone said, ouch. And for the person that's sitting here with their arms crossed and I don't struggle with pride nor um, false humility. Let me ask you a question. When someone takes a picture of you, who do you look for in the picture? <laughs> Silence in the church today. And if the picture of you, if everyone else looks great in the picture, but you don't look good in the picture, what do you want to do with that picture? You want to delete it. It doesn't matter about anyone. It's about me. So all in the church said, ouch, and the Lord help me. But the good news is, for those of us who struggle with pride on this side, like vainglory or false humility, there's grace at the cross. Amen. All right, it's going to get positive now. That's, that's heavy. I don't like listening to a sermon where it's heavy the whole time, you know. But the good thing about going verse by verse is the text kind of flows. So there's some heaviness here. But look at verse 7 and 8. It says, but say the word. Someone say, say the word. And my servant will be healed. So we have the fearless faith. This is the one thing that got Jesus' attention. It wasn't the centurion's generosity. It wasn't that he built a church. I mean, can you imagine one person writing a check and say, build a new church? I've never seen that yet. I mean, that's like, what? It wasn't, all those things are great. It wasn't that he was loving towards his servant or the Jews liked him or he was popular. It wasn't any of those things. The one thing that got Jesus to do a double take was this guy believed in Jesus so much. He said, listen, I know that you've laid hands on the sick. I know you've done a lot of things, Capernaum. I've heard the stories. Um, 
Didn't, didn't Peter live in Capernaum? You remember his mother-in-law was sick. All these things happened in Capernaum. And in fact, one thing I didn't mention, at least four of the disciples' apostles were from Capernaum. You have Peter and Andrew and James and John. And Matthew, by the way, the tax, he was originally Jewish, but he was around Capernaum. So you have five of the, the apostles that were stationed around Capernaum. Most of the miracles of Jesus happened in and around Capernaum, which is so sad because Nazareth kicked him out. I mean, think about that. You're kicking the one who's going to do miracles and change lives and say, we don't want you. They try to kill him. But guess what? He settled in Capernaum. So the thing that got his attention is his faith. He said, just say the word. Now, how many have served in military armed forces? Raise your hand. Okay, you guys are going to get something the rest of us don't get. In military... Navy, whatever branch, you have ranks, right? So you have, who, who's at the very top? David, help me out. The general's at the top, and then what's the next level? Colonels. Majors. And then captains. So this centurion was like a captain. So they understand ranks. And the thing about those in the armed forces, you get your rank. I'm going to talk to this person because they're at this level, this person's this level, and it's a military culture that's different. In her world today, we could learn a little bit about submission to ranks, right? But this guy got something. He said, Jesus, whenever I tell someone under my command to go, what does he do? He goes. If I tell someone to do it, does he talk back? No, he does it. So here's, here's the beautiful thing, and I want you guys to get the picture. This guy is the leader of 100 men in an invading army. And the Jews are the ones they've conquered. They're the conquered people. This man of power and wealth and status humbles himself and says, Jesus, I understand authority. And the implication is, I know that God has sent you. You are God's man. So everybody else, including myself, is under your authority. So if you will just speak the word, just like I tell someone to do it, it's done. If you will speak out healing power... Just because you say so, it will be so. Aren't you glad that we serve a God that if he says so, it will be so? He has the power to change everything with one spoken word. So some of you may be in a situation that's very bad. But you know what? God has the power to change everything with one spoken word. The same God in Genesis 1 and 2 that said, let the earth be, let there be light, let there be stars. And he spoke the world into existence with the spoken word. The same power resides in Jesus Christ. So he says, I believe in the power of authority. So it reminds me of a saying that we quoted a while back from Ed Young. That's, you remember the big umbrella? And he said, whenever you get under what God has over you, God will raise you above what he has under you. You want me to say that again, don't you? Whenever you get under... What God has over you, God will raise you above what he has under you. It's about authority and submission. So he says, Jesus, I'm going to submit under your authority so that you can raise my servant above this sickness. And if you will just speak the word, I believe. And notice the rapid response, number nine, the rapid response. Verse nine, when Jesus heard these things, he what? Marveled at him. Now, here's, here's the question, okay? Is Jesus God? He is, right? So how can God marvel like in awe and wonder? It's like, imagine like some, the kid that knows all the answers on the test, 
and you give him an answer that you already knew, how would he be shocked or surprised? So well, there, there is a theological thing. Jesus has put on a human body. It's called the incarnation, which meant that he didn't independently exercise his rights of deity, even though they were there. So there are times in the Bible where it says Jesus was surprised like this or Jesus learned. You're like, if he's God, how did he learn? Well, it's called the incarnation. It's God plus a human body. And Jesus could tap into his all knowledge, but he didn't always do that while he was on earth. That's why he grew in wisdom and in stature. So in this case, Jesus saw something that just took his breath away and he marveled. Now, that's, that's kind of fascinating to think about. The, the one who created the stars, the one who created the world, the Grand Canyon, everything you see that some human being could could exhibit a certain character quality that would call Jesus just to do a double take. I don't know about you, but I want God to marvel when he looks at my life. Not because I'm better or greater, any of that, because of faith. The Bible says without faith you can't please God. But Jesus said if you have a little bit of faith, as small as a mustard seed, you can move mountains. So the one thing that got Jesus' attention was not the guy's generosity, which is great. It wasn't the fact that he was friends with Jewish elders, which was great. It wasn't the fact that he was a loving, caring boss, if you will. It was the fact that he believed that if Jesus would just speak the word, it would be done. The question I have for you today, do you have that type of faith? Do you really believe, like with the faith of a five-year-old child, that God can do whatever he wants to do? Oh, to God, that we would have just a little bit of the faith of the centurion. Jesus turned around. And something that sometimes we miss in this, in this passage is he praised the guy in front of the crowd. Do you notice that? Notice he said, I have not found such great faith, even in Israel. And by the way, for, for the Bible students in the audience, there's only two times where the Bible says Jesus marveled. This is one. Does anybody know the other time? And you can respond out loud if you'd like. The other time is in Nazareth. I believe it's Mark 6. Where, where he expected to find faith, he didn't find any faith. So it's two sides of the same coin. Jesus marvels when you don't expect to find faith and there's great faith. And he marveled the second time when there should have been faith and there wasn't faith. So faith is the currency of the kingdom. Faith is the currency of the kingdom. If you want God to marvel, all these things the guy did was great, but it was one thing that caused Jesus to marvel, and that's faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. With faith, you can do miracles. Amen? All right, I wish I had another 30 minutes because I could keep going on this text. Finally, we see the marvelous miracle. Miracles are usually precedented by faith. Great miracles take someone that's going to believe that God can do it. Verse 10, and those who were sent were turned to the house. They found the servant who had been sick that he was made well. So I want you to think about this. Jesus can turn a funeral into a festival. Jesus can change everything in just a moment. So all of a sudden, the sent ones, that's interesting, the sent ones, right? The people that the centurion had sent, they came home. And all of a sudden, this guy that was, they were getting ready to plan at his funeral. You know, they had probably chosen the two or three songs they were going to sing. You know, how they do it at funeral planning. And all of a sudden, 
Well, Martha, we've got to throw away the funeral plan. You can't sing those three songs. Just as I am, we'll have to wait, or whatever it was. Because this guy that was knocking on death's door, he's alive. He's risen. And that's just, you know, that's just amazing. So whenever our dying selves collide with the living Lord, the great physician, something miraculous happens. The healer makes us whole again. And here's the good news. If we die today, we'll wake up in the next moment in eternity, completely healed and made whole. So God always heals the Christian. It's just a matter of when. And his timing is always perfect. Amen. So a little application, and I didn't come up with this on my own. I got this from Mark Driscoll. I thought it was a really good insight. He said there's three types of people in this story. First of all, you have the religious Jews. They said Jesus, this centurion, is deserving because he's done certain works. That's religion. Religion teaches if you do certain things, you get God's attention. But we know from the gospel, you can't do anything. It's believing by grace through, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. So here's, if we want to get theological, even the centurion's faith was a gift from God himself. Which is kind of interesting. Jesus marveled at a gift that God had already given him. Ask me to explain that and I can't. So we see the Jewish people. And I think in, in every church across America, there's people who are religious. And that morality is good in and of itself. Except when it gets to the point of, God owes me. You ever seen anybody that gets mad when someone dies? Because the implication is, I, I live such a good life, God owed this to me to heal this person. Anytime we say, God owes me something, we find ourselves, we're living in religion. Instead of a relationship with God. The second picture is a suffering servant. There's many people in the... In the sound of my voice today, you, you have you yourself or you know people in your family that are suffering. And there's good news for the suffering servant. We have a hopeful healer in Jesus Christ. And if they will place their faith in Christ, no matter what happens to their body, there's a new body that's promised in glory. Amen. And then we have the caring centurion. He was a moral person, but in the progression of faith, it's my belief that he comes to salvation. Because faith that causes Jesus to marvel is saving faith. And it wasn't the good works that saved him. It wasn't his caring compassion. It was the fact that he had faith in Jesus Christ. I was talking to someone recently, and they were talking about someone from another religion. And so, you know, at least they have faith. They really have beliefs. That's good. And I said, well, it depends what you have faith in. If you have faith in anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ revealed in the Bible, you don't have faith in something that's true. If I have cancer and I, I feel like if I rub some essential oil or drink some oil of oregano, all that's good, but that's not going to cure my cancer. So it's not having faith in and of itself, it's having faith in Christ. So that the centurion would be, all those good works are good, but let's take our next step of believing that Jesus can do anything. Amen? So we've talked about a lot today. So I want to summarize it in one sentence, if you look on your listening guide. A fearless faith. And the hopeful healer will resurrect hope, even in the most hopeless situation. So the one key I want you guys to walk away with is this. I want you to be generous. I want you to be loving. I want you to be all those good things. But the greatest thing you can do when it comes to seeing miracles is to have faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, we want to have love. Yes, we want to have hope. But when it comes to seeing miracles, when it comes to seeing 
getting Jesus to marvel. When it comes to that context, all those things we mentioned are great. But faith is what moves mountains. Let us pray. Father, we know from your word different things are treasured in different contexts. The Apostle Paul tells us that love is the greatest of all things, and we know that. But when it comes to getting Jesus to marvel, when it comes to seeing miracles take place, we thank you that this servant, he had love and he had compassion. But Jesus, in this context, what moved you was his faith. So, Father, I pray for all the attributes we mentioned. We want to we want to walk in love. We want to be generous and et cetera. But, Lord, the one thing I'm praying today for Arden First Baptist is that we would have childlike faith in the one who created the universe, the ones who breathed stars into existence, the one who made us. Help us to have faith in him alone. As we pray with no one looking around, there may be someone that would identify with the religious Jews. You've been moral, but you think God owes you something. And today you've rediscovered that God doesn't owe you anything. We deserve hell, but for the grace of God, he forgives us. Anything we get is because of his blessing. So if you've, you have ever struggled with God owes me, just confess that to him. Say, God, I'm sorry. Forgive me. As the believers continue to pray, there may be someone that said, Timothy, when you talked about False humility or pride, man, that, that, that's where I struggle. Surrender your insecurity and your selfishness to him. Ask him to forgive you and he will. He'll help you. As the believers continue to pray, if there be one here today, like the centurion, you need to place your faith in Jesus Christ alone. If that's you, right where you're sitting, say, Jesus, just pray to him now. Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross and you rose from the dead. Jesus, I need to have faith in you alone. You are the only way, the only truth, and the only life. So Jesus, I pray that you would forgive me of my sins. I don't want to walk the way I've been walking. I turn from them. I invite you into my life, my heart, to make you my Lord, my Savior, my everything. Friend, if you prayed that prayer, we want to congratulate you on the first step of faith. Welcome to the faith journey. Father, thank you for your grace. And for your love, we love you and we thank you. And our God's children said, Amen. This time-